Good evening and welcome again to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence tonight. We're very thankful for the opportunity to be together, to worship God in spirit and in truth. It is cold outside, but we're grateful to have a warm building in which we can come and be a part of this worship service. We're going to be looking at the passage that Isaiah read just a moment ago from Isaiah chapter 53, and specifically we're going to look at the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 53. And I want to call your attention to those verses tonight as we think about a picture in prophecy. The Old Testament points us in the direction of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Following the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God set forth the promised seed as revealed in chapter 3 at verse 15. Beginning at that point in time in history, we have an unfolding of the redemptive plan. The fact that God would ultimately redeem the human family through His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 12, God called on a man by the name of Abraham. And it would ultimately be through Abraham and his lineage that the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 would come forth. God said in chapter 12 at verse 3, In you shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so, in reading the historical account of the book of Genesis, we find that through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the tribe of Judah, the Christ would indeed emerge. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet speaks of the Christ coming through the family of David. And then we get to about 700 B.C. or so, and we have Isaiah the prophet foretelling of the coming of the Christ. And in a very vivid way, he foretells of the death of God's anointed servant. And so tonight we look at chapter 53 and we think about a picture of in prophecy. The first thing I want to call your attention to is the advent of Jesus. When we talk about his advent, we're really focusing upon his arrival. Now, Isaiah here is foretelling some 750 years before Jesus would come to this earth about the Messiah, and he's foretelling of the coming of the one that we talked about back in Genesis chapter. 3 at verse 15. And so the question is asked by the prophet, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. When you begin to read the Old and the New Testaments, one of the things I think that you would agree with me on is that many of the Jews misunderstood the coming of the Christ. They misunderstand. They misunderstood the nature of His coming. Many of the, the, the Jewish people, they had the idea that the Messiah would come to liberate them. And of course, when the Christ came into the world, it was during the days of the Roman Empire, and so they were looking for a physical monarchy, so to speak. Well, Jesus would come forth as a root out of a dry ground. Now, farmers would certainly tell you that in order for a sprout to come forth, there has to be, there has to be water. 
in order for germination to take place. It would be very unlikely for a sprout to come forth out of the ground without water or moisture. Well, when you look at the coming of the Christ and you, you think about what the scriptures have to say relative to his coming, it would seem unlikely that the Messiah would come in the fashion that is set forth in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. And so first of all, I call your attention to the birth of Jesus. Now in chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah said, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now over in the book of Matthew chapter 1, we read of an angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream. And the Bible says that that angel appeared to Joseph and told him that that which had been conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit and that she would bring forth a son. And he said, He shall be called Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Now all of this was done in compliance with the work of the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew documents this in chapter 1. He points out that Isaiah foretold of the virgin birth. That the Emmanuel, that is Emmanuel would come, which being translated is God with us. And so you can read about the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. As well as in Luke over in chapter 2. When you look at the birth of Christ, we think about that angelic host that cried out, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Here we have Christ incarnate, this promised seed of Genesis 3 at verse 15. And you can follow that seed line throughout the Old Testament. Everything pointing to the coming of the birth of the Son of God. A body, according to the Hebrew writer, was prepared for Christ to tabernacle in. Bear in mind that this was the second member of the Godhead. John said in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. As the second member of the Godhead, Jesus is the one who created the world. He's the one that, that brought creation into order. Well, John said that the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what you and I need to see is that the prophet foretold of the birth of Christ. Matthew documents the fact that the Christ was born of the virgin, just as Isaiah had said some 750 years earlier. And then we think about His birthplace. Again, we talk about the birthplace of the Son of God. Now, Jesus was not born, as you know, in the palace of a king. He was not born into wealth, but rather he was born where? In a lowly stable. The Bible tells us that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, just as it had been written in the prophet. And you can go back to Micah chapter 5. And Micah foretells of the birthplace of the Christ. That birthplace was Bethlehem. And he speaks of the Christ and he says, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. And I think that simply underscores the deity of Christ. That Christ, as a second member of the Godhead, is an eternal being. 
But then what about the boyhood of Jesus? When you look at the boyhood of Jesus, what, what do you have recorded in the New Testament? What do you have about the teenage years of the Christ? What about his life during his 20s? Well, the fact of the matter is, we have nothing said about Jesus after Luke chapter 2 when we talk about his going to the city of Jerusalem with his family members at the age of 12. And after that, nothing more is recorded for some 18 years. And then in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible says he began his public ministry at the age of about 30 years. Now, I simply point all, all of that out to say this. What is recorded is what God deemed necessary for us to understand about his son. And so in Luke chapter 2, we read about Jesus. We, we've looked at his birth, his birthplace, and then his boyhood. In Luke 2 verse 40, the Bible speaks of the young child, Jesus. And it says that he grew in spirit. He was filled with wisdom. In Luke 2 verse 41 and following, we read of Jesus at the age of 12 traveling to Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast. Now you and I know that after they had observed the feast that his parents began returning home and Jesus stayed behind. After they had gotten down the road a ways they realized that Jesus was not in their company and so they traveled back to Jerusalem and found him and the Bible says that he had been conversing with the religious leaders of that day and they marveled at his questions and his understanding. His mother could not understand why Jesus would have stayed behind. And certainly she was filled with anxiety. And Jesus said to her, I must be about my father's business. Now, Jesus was not talking about his earthly father's business because we know that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, was what? He was a carpenter. He was talking about his heavenly father. And so... Jesus then returned home with his parents, and the Bible says that he was subject to them. In other words, he was submissive to them. But he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. At that point in time, Scripture says nothing more about the Son of God until the age of 30. And so we talk about his advent, and certainly it was a very unlikely advent somewhat of an unspectacular birth, and yet his childhood years, no doubt, were spectacular. But we think about his birth, his growth, the fact that he was growing in wisdom, stature, in favor with God and man. But now I want you to see a second thing that is recorded for us in Isaiah 53. This has to do with the appearance of Jesus. Now there are a lot of people that have asked the question, what did Jesus look like? And many of us have probably seen any number of pictures that have been, that have been painted by, by people and they have only guessed at the physical appearance of Jesus. Let me ask this question. What was it that made Jesus so attractive to others? Do you think it was some kind of physical beauty that, that he emitted in life? Listen, if you would, to what the prophet said in verse 2. The Bible says he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
That word beauty literally carries with it the idea of appearance. Well, what about the beauty of Jesus? Did you know that there are some songs that we sing from time to time that accentuate the beauty of Jesus? Now, what I want to do is contrast outward beauty and inward beauty. When you talk about outward beauty, I would suggest that that is the world's standard. As a matter of fact, the criterion for judging people in many respects is what? It's outward beauty. It's how a person looks. Well, go back and look at, go back and look at the Old Testament. Saul, you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God's people asked for a king, and Samuel was disenchanted that they had asked for a king, and yet God said, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And so as a result of that, God gave them a king, a man by the name of of Saul was chosen. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 9 at verse 2, we read about Saul. And interestingly, the Bible says that Saul was a very handsome young man. Another individual that was very, very handsome, a man by the name of Absalom. And you can read about his life, his exploits over in the book of 2 Samuel. But in 2 Samuel about chapter 14, the Bible speaks of, of his good looks, of his very fine appearance before others. As a matter of fact, I would suggest, or I would, I, I, I take, as a result of reading the historical account of, of Absalom, that he would have exceeded the physical beauty or the physical appearance of many people. With somebody that stood head and shoulders about others. But in, in talking about this idea of outward beauty, the Bible says that when we see Jesus, or that is, when Jesus appeared in the first century, that there would be no beauty, that there would be nothing to draw others to him based on his physical appearance. Well, I wonder why that's the case. In 1 Samuel chapter 16 at verse 7, when God anointed David as king over Israel, David was probably an unlikely candidate to fill the shoes of Saul. And God made an observation to Samuel that I think is, is worthy of our consideration. He said, man looks on the outward appearance. That's how we judge people, isn't it? I mean, you think about how much money is spent in our country today on, on cosmetics, on on any number of things to, to make people look better. Why is that? Because many people feel like they're judged on the basis of how they look. And so that is the world standard. And yet the Bible says that when, when people saw Jesus, there would be no beauty, no comeliness, that people should be drawn to Him. So, outward beauty, the world's standard, the world's criterion. But I want you to think in contrast to that of the inward beauty of Jesus. Let me just, let me just pause here and make, make this observation. Many of us have probably seen any number of portraits of Jesus. How is he typically uh, portrayed? Somewhat effeminate? Is that not the case? Smooth skin? Looks like he never worked a day in his life? Look, looks like he spent most of his time indoors? Now, do you really think that that's an accurate depiction of Jesus? Jesus was the son of a carpenter. 
Most carpenters that I know are pretty rough people. I don't mean that rough to look at. I just mean that, you know, they spend a, they spend a lot of time outdoors. They're in the sun. They're exposed to, to cold weather. And their hands are, are rugged and rough. They're strong. They're tough people. That, that's the point. And so when we think about Jesus, that, that, that's the picture that I have in my mind of the Son of God. Somebody who spent a lot of times outdoors, who worked with his hands, who was in no way effeminate looking. Well, what was it that, that would ultimately draw people to Jesus? It wasn't his outward beauty. I don't think there was anything physically striking about Jesus that, that suggested to people, oh, we've got to follow him. I mean, look at, look at what a fine specimen of God's creation this man is. I don't think that was the case at all. I think what drew people to Jesus was his inward nature. This inward quality or these inward qualities that he possessed. When we talk about outward beauty, that is the world's criterion. Inward beauty, that's God's criterion. That's God's standard. You see, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on what? The heart. God's interested in what's inside of me. God's interested in the inward man. And so, in light of that, what about Jesus? When you look at the life of Jesus, could we not draw or paint a portrait of Jesus based on what Scripture says about His life, about His inward beauty. Think, first of all, about His words. In John chapter 7, verse 46, a statement is made about the Son of God that I think we ought to underline in our Bible. It is said of Jesus, no man ever spoke like this man. He was incomparable. Back in chapter 6, when Jesus declared himself to be the bread of life, many of his disciples, upon hearing that, went back and no longer followed him. And Jesus asked the question, will you also go away? Simon Peter responded by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. In verse 68. Think about all of the great words that Jesus spoke during his earthly ministry. We talk about his earthly ministry comprising some three years. How much did Jesus pack in to three years of life? Three years of ministry. We talk about people preaching and teaching for 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years. I doubt anyone that has ever preached the gospel has said more than Jesus did in such a short period of time. Take, for example, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You begin with the Beatitudes, and Jesus lays a foundation upon which those who would follow him could, could begin taking these characteristics and implementing them into their lives. And then the whole Sermon on the Mount is, is really a treatise, so to speak, on discipleship, on those qualities or characteristics that ought to be a part of our inward nature, our inward lives. 
And so over and over again, Jesus was preaching and teaching to the multitudes and all of the things that he said, no doubt, made people pause and think, who is this person? Now, in, in connection with that, we think about the signs that he performed. In the book of John, for example, seven signs are recorded in addition to seven I am statements. And each and every one of those signs, as well as those statements, affirmed his deity. The signs that he produced, they were an affirmation that this is who Jesus claims to, Jesus claims to be. That is, he's the Messiah, the Son of God. But the words of Jesus, and then secondly, the deeds of Jesus. What about his deeds? What about the great things that Jesus did while upon this earth? Here's what Luke said in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. That Jesus went about doing good. You ever thought about how much that encapsules? Jesus went about doing good. We talk about these inward qualities that attracted people to him. What was it that attracted people to Jesus? Was it his looks? No. It wasn't his outward, his outward appearance, but rather it was his inward beauty. What about some of the qualities or characteristics that, that we read about in the New Testament that Jesus demonstrated in his life? Let me just cite for you a couple. The first thing that comes to mind has to do with his compassion. Jesus was compassionate. In Mark chapter 1, we read about a leper coming to Jesus. And he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus could have said, look, I don't have time to talk to you. Jesus could have said, do you, do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to, to the Son of God here. And I've got an important work before me and I don't have time to hear about your physical malady. That wasn't, that wasn't what is recorded for us by Mark in his narrative of the gospel. The Bible says that this man came and kneeling before Jesus implored him, Lord if you will you can make me clean. And the Bible says that Jesus being moved with compassion put forth his hand and said I will be clean compassion we live in a society today when where there are a lot of heartless people now I, I do believe that there are a lot of good people in our society and there are a lot of tender-hearted people that are compassionate and they can they can empathize and sympathize with us when we face difficulties in this life but Jesus bar none, was compassionate. In the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, the Bible says we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who has been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. The Hebrew writer there is saying that Jesus can identify with what we're going through. He understands. He cares about us. Now, when, when you... When you begin making friends with others, what, what are some of the qualities that attract you to, to another person? What is it that attracts you to a potential mate? What was it that attracted you to your mate? Maybe it was a tender heart. Maybe it was the fact that, that here's a compassionate person, somebody that, that feels what I feel. 
who hurts the way I hurt. A second characteristic, his love. How many people had ever demonstrated the depth of love that Jesus did? In John 15, 13, the Bible says, Greater love has no man than this. Then a man laid down his life for his friends. Jesus personified love in so many ways. When I, when I read about the Lord Jesus Christ interacting with people, one of the things that stands out to me is the fact that, that he truly and genuinely loved people. And Jesus, Jesus spent time with those who were downtrodden, those who were diseased, those who were somewhat of, of an outcast in society. For example, the leper. Or Matthew, the tax collector. Or Zacchaeus, again, a tax collector. Or the Samaritan woman, as recorded by John in chapter 4. Each and every time you see Jesus conversing with people, you see a being of love. Read John chapter 3. And impress yourself with the love of God and the love of the Son of God. A third characteristic that I think Jesus demonstrated in his life. And that is service. Jesus came to what? He came to serve. We talk about the inward beauty of Jesus. Those traits that, that drew people to him. Well, What, what was it that, that compelled people? In great numbers, to follow the Son of God. Again, was it His physical beauty? No, I don't think it was. I think it was the fact that here were people that could see that this is a man who truly cares about me. He's compassionate. He's, sympath he's sympathetic to my plight here on earth. He can empathize with me. He truly loves me. He cares about me as a human being. And He came to serve me. In John chapter 13, we read about Jesus before he was put to death on Calvary's cross. What is he doing on that occasion? Before they observe the Passover feast, he's washing the feet of the disciples. None of those other men were willing to stoop to, to such a lowly type of service, but Jesus did. In Philippians chapter 2, the Bible speaks of Christ who existing in the form of God counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but the Bible says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus came to serve. That's why in Matthew chapter 20, at verse 28, he could say, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Is it not the case that that if somebody showers you with affection, that shows that they genuinely care about you, that they love you as a human being, that they try to serve you to meet your needs, does that not attract you to, to that individual? It does me. But let's just imagine for a moment that you've, you've been facing some adverse circumstances in life. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've not only lost a loved one, but you've lost your, your job, your career. Maybe you face some financial setbacks in life, and here comes somebody, and they can empathize with you. They understand what you're going through. And so they're calling you on the telephone. They're writing you notes of encouragement. 
They're helping you out financially. They're putting food on your table. They're praying for you. In other words, they're there to serve. Would that not make an impact in your life? The obvious answer ought to be yes. Well, that's how Jesus, that's how Jesus conducted himself here upon this earth. And then finally, what about his influence? Now Luke said that Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30 years. He lived some three years from that point in time forward. We talk about his earthly ministry consisting of about three years. Died at the age of 33. And yet, in that three-year span of time, what a great influence Jesus welded upon planet Earth. You just think about 2,000 years later, we're we're still talking about the Son of God. Does that not say something about the measure of influence that he exerted on the human family? And again, go back and look at at the lives of, of people that he changed for the better. Jesus had this ability to to take somebody who was a nothing and make something out of them. Read, for example, in Matthew chapter 4 of Peter and Andrew and James and John. What were these men? They were fishermen. They hadn't gone to school. They hadn't spent time in a preacher training school. And yet Jesus said, look, you are fishers. You're fishermen by trade. He said, but I'm going to make you fishers of men. Jesus took these men, and he took some additional men. We talk about his 12 apostles. He molded them. He schooled them. He mentored them. And he radically changed the world. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 17, the Bible says the charge was made when Paul and Silas made their way into the city of Thessalonica and preached the gospel there, the charge was made, these men that have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, that's the kind of influence Jesus exerted in this world. Now you tell me, would that be attractive to you? The world standard of beauty is what? It's outward in nature. God's standard of beauty, it's not outward in nature, it's inward. We we put all this time and effort into trying to look better. All of us want to look good. I want to look good. You want to look good. And and we we want to be presentable before others. But we don't need to lose sight of the fact that what God's concerned about is the inner man. And so Isaiah said, that when we see Him, there's no beauty that we should desire Him. Jesus did not come looking like Absalom. He didn't look like Saul. I think Jesus was just an ordinary man. And when people saw Him, it, you know, it wasn't something that as He passed by, people said, said you know, my, my, what a, what a handsome fellow. I don't think that's the case at all. I think what attracted people to Jesus was His inward beauty. Very quickly and thirdly, the agony of Jesus. When we talk about the agony of Jesus, we're really focusing upon his afflictions, the burdens that he bore upon this earth. And so, first of all, look if you would at verse 3. How was Jesus viewed by mankind? Well, here's what's said by Isaiah the prophet He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. When you look at the life of Jesus and you ask the question, how was he viewed by mankind, you can sum it up in one word, rejection. You ever gone door-to-door selling? I've gone door-to-door before, a long time ago. I hated it. And one of the reasons I hated it, well, there are a lot of reasons, I guess, but you hear a lot of no's. Well, when Jesus came to his own, here's what John said in John chapter 1, verse 11. His own received him not. They rejected him. Not only was Jesus rejected, he was despised by mankind. It's hard for me to imagine, here is the Son of God engaged in the greatest work known to man. He is healing the sick. He's restoring sight to the blind. He's raising the dead. And you would think that when people saw these great signs and they heard these marvelous words, that they would say, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. We need to believe in Him. We need to follow Him. To me... The crowning miracle that he performed, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. One instance. And yet in John chapter 11, the Bible says that while some believed in him, many did not believe in him. Not only did they not believe in him, but they began setting into motion a plan to put him to death. Jesus was despised and rejected. By men. So we ask the question, how was Jesus viewed by mankind? Well, people despised him. They rejected him. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. But you will not come to me that you might have life. Now here's the Son of God just laying it on the table. He's saying, look, you search the scriptures, you believe... We talk about the Jews. They were the custodians of Scripture. You have entrusted into your care the Word of God. The Word of God does what? It points in my direction. It supports the claims that I'm making, that I am the Son of God. Jesus said, you won't come to me that you might have life. And so, yes, he was rejected by men. But here's the second question. The first question, how was Jesus viewed by mankind? But the second question, and maybe this is a more important question, How did Jesus view mankind? You see, it's one thing to ask the question, how was Jesus viewed by man, but how did Jesus view man? In other words, what was his take on the human family? How did he view us? Let me just make this statement. Jesus realized that mankind was worthy of his suffering and death. In other words, he saw something in the human family that was worth saving. And so read with me, if you would, in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Jesus saw something in all of us that was worth saving. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 at verse 9. You have heard of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Now, let me just ask this question in closing. We don't really have time to amplify upon verses 4 through 7 like we probably ought to. But let's just, let's just hypothetically put ourselves in the place of God. Had that been our son that was despised and rejected by creation, had that been our son whose face was spat upon, had that been our son who had that crown of thorns placed upon his head, had that been our son who was given a purple robe, they put a reed in his right hand and bowed before him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, in a mocking, taunting way. How would we have reacted? Many of us have probably read stories about individuals who, who have been victimized in some way or another. I think about a parent who has lost a child to a drunken driver. Or a parent who has lost a child to some other terrible accident. And maybe someone was at fault. And there are instances when those things occur and the first thought is to retaliate. To get even. Now here is God the Father. He sent His Son to die for our sins. And he observed the inhumane treatment that was hurled upon the back of the Son of God. He watched as his Son was mocked and taunted and ridiculed and beaten to a pulp and placed on a cross. He watched as his Son breathed his last and said, it is finished. How did God react? Do you think that God... Do you think that God wanted to retaliate. Here's what Isaiah said. Look, if you would, at Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you, made it, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God was thankful that his son took upon himself this role of servanthood. He was grateful that Jesus executed this plan that he had in place before the world was ever framed or created. What does that say to us? It says to us that God the Father saw something very special in the human family. It says that Jesus Christ, the Son, saw something very special in the human family. He left everything and came to earth to die for us. And so, as we go about our daily business in life, I would remind all of us to remember that Jesus paid a heavy price for our sins. The Bible says God commendeth His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the price for our sins. Tonight, what about you? Are you a New Testament Christian? 
Have you obeyed the gospel? Did you know that Jesus died for you? If you're here tonight and you've not obeyed the gospel, here's what you need to do. You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Because without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to Him. Hebrews chapter 11. And then what you need to do is repent. Turn from a life of sin. Acts 2 verse 38. Confess His name before others. Acts 8 verse 37. And be immersed in water so that every sin will be washed away. Acts 22 16. When you do that, the Lord will add you to the church. Acts 2 47. And if you're faithful, the promise is the crown of life. Revelation 2 at verse 10. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not faithful to His cause. I don't know why you've left the Lord. But maybe you have. And if you have, what I would do, what I would want to do tonight is to encourage you to come home. To realize that God sent His Son to die for you. He was concerned about you before you obeyed the gospel. He's concerned about you now as an erring child of God. He wants you to come home. The question is, will you? If you'll come home, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.